you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, we're going to find out that we are living in the last days and that a new day is soon to dawn. And I want to be clear from the very beginning that I, I don't mean that these are the last days, literally, of 2018 and that the new day to dawn is the new year that is soon to come upon us. I want to establish this perspective from the beginning because I have no intention of this being just another New Year's sermon. What I have to say this morning is far more important and far more eternal than a New Year's resolution. The wisdom to which I'm calling us this morning has nothing to do with exercise or weight loss or diets as important or necessary as those may be at the end of this Christmas season. Those things will soon pass away. What I have to say this morning doesn't even primarily have to do with reading the Bible more in the coming year or coming to church more regularly in the coming year. So let's step out of the New Year's mindset and let's step into a last days mindset. Because when I say that these are the last days, many of you, having been with me through our study of Revelation a few years back, understand that I believe that the Bible regards the entire period between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ to be the last days. But for those of you who may be new to this kind of inaugurated eschatology, that's the fancy word for it, let me run a few passages by you to show you that that this is indeed the way that the biblical authors thought. So you don't have to turn with me, they'll be on the screen behind me, but I want to give you just a brief sampling of what I'm talking about, the biblical time frame in which we live today. Peter, speaking to the crowd at Pentecost, said concerning the spiritual phenomena, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and the like, which were occurring in the midst of the newborn church in Acts chapter 2, he said, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh." Peter then proceeds to quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, which is a prophecy explicitly identified with the last days. And Peter applies that last days prophecy to the new church in AD 30. So evidently, Peter considered the last days to have been inaugurated by the resurrection and ascension of Christ, such that he... 2,000 years ago, was living in the last days. James chapter 5 and verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Evidently, James thought the coming of the Lord to be very near, such that his imminent return called for a certain way of living, a way in which our hearts are established in the truth. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, Peter shows us that he believed that he lived in the last days. He, believed, he lived in a time when the end of all things was at hand. John, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And this last text is particularly relevant for us this morning because it establishes that not only is it the last hour, and I would remind you that John wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago, not only is it the last hour, but there are miniature, prototypical antichrists running around already wreaking havoc upon the earth. So to a man, the biblical authors believed that when Christ died and rose again, he ushered in, he inaugurated the last days, the final era of redemptive history, which would be a time of trial and tribulation as well as a time of triumphant evangelization. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So before the end comes, the gospel is going to go to all nations. So because we are living in the time of the end, that means that now is the time when that evangelization of the nations is going to happen. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." That we are living in the last days does not mean that Jesus is going to come back next Tuesday. Or that he's going to come back in the next year. Or that he's going to come back in the next decade. Or that he's going to come back even in the next century. That we are living in the last days means that he could. For 2,000 years the church, indeed the whole world, has been living under the shadow of Christ's imminent return for salvation and judgment. The point of saying we live in the last days is not time, it's imminence. And this imminence is intended to create an urgency within Christ's church. An urgency to accomplish the church's great commission. For many in the history of the church, this knowledge that we're living in the last days has done just that. It has created that intense urgency. We must go to the nations. You see this urgency just burning in the hearts of men like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, and many, many others. Lottie Moon in China. But I don't think that we at First Baptist Nixa, feel that urgency. I know that I don't. And this lack of urgency has deadened our evangelistic zeal 
and it has rendered us as a church silent and stagnant. Now, this church loves Jesus. I have no doubt about that. This church loves his word. This church loves his people. And I cannot tell you how grateful to God I am for that. I spoke with a pastor this week who's not in a church like that. And all I could do was commiserate and say, man, that must be difficult. But this church isn't like that. I'm grateful for God to the way that this church loves Jesus and the way this church loves the people of Christ and the way this church loves me. But we don't share Jesus. We don't talk about Jesus to our unbelieving family and friends and neighbors. We don't push through the awkwardness and fear and turn conversations toward the gospel and toward the word of God. By and large, I think from my perspective, by and large, evangelism is not a high priority at First Baptist Nixon. And that troubles me. It troubles me because I don't want us to be the frozen chosen. We mock those who are an inch deep and a mile wide. But neither do I want to be a mile deep and an inch wide. I want to be expansive. I want First Baptist Nixa to be deep and wide. And I think that one reason evangelism is not a high priority is because we do not live with a sense of urgency. And I think that we do not live with a sense of urgency because we have lost sight of the imminence of the end. Beloved, 2019 could very well be the last year of this present age. Do you understand that? What if it was? That's my goal as we, as we stand here this morning on the precipice of a new year is to get us to think very possibly this could be the last year of this present age. And to ask ourselves, how would that change the way I live in the coming year? That's what I want us to spend this last Sunday morning of 2018 meditating upon. I want us to live wisely in 2019. I want us to live 2019 as if Christ were returning sometime this year. And as our text from Daniel 12 will show, living wisely in the coming year will mean living with evangelistic intentionality. Now I knew what I wanted to preach this last Sunday in 2018. I knew that I wanted to challenge us to evangelistic in intentionality and evangelistic urgency. I just didn't know which text I was going to preach it from. And as I prayed, my heart was drawn away from the more obvious choices, the Matthew 28 Great Commission or the Acts 1-8 passage. My heart was drawn rather to an obscure passage that captured my attention a number of years ago. And I, I didn't quite know why at the time, but I think I know now. Daniel 12 establishes, perhaps better than any other text in all of Scripture, the causal relationship between the eminence of the end and the urgency of the evangelistic task. 
There is a cause and effect. If you don't think the end is imminent, you will not feel that evangelistic urgency. There's a causal relationship between those two realities. But Daniel is an extremely difficult book to enter into and to preach a single sermon from, particularly the last half of the book of Daniel, because Daniel 7 to 12 contains some of the most difficult and detailed prophecies in all of the Bible. It would be very much like jumping into the middle of Revelation and preaching a standalone sermon. There's so much groundwork that has to be laid in order to properly interpret these prophetic apocalyptic visions that the task is almost impossible. But I couldn't shake Daniel 12 from my heart and from my mind. So I'm going to do my best this morning to give you just as much as you need to understand Daniel 12, 1 through 4 and nothing more. Lest we get bogged down in kings and princes and kingdoms and empires and charts and graphs and end up losing the forest for the trees. Daniel 10 to Daniel 12 is one prophetic unit. Okay? It's the last prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel 10 provides the prologue to the last great prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel 11.1 to 12.4 provide the content of that prophetic message. And then the last part of Daniel 12 provides the epilogue to that last prophecy. In Daniel 10, we learn that Daniel has been mourning and fasting and praying for three weeks, most likely in response to the troubling news that has come back from Israel, that the reconstruction of the temple has ceased in the midst of tribulation and persecution from the people who had settled in the land during and after the Babylonian exile. In response to Daniel's Morning and fasting and weeping and praying, an angel was sent from heaven to Daniel with a prophecy of the future of God's people. That prophecy is the content of Daniel 11. Daniel's vision of the angel itself in Daniel 10 is stunning and it's significant because it, it, it pulls back the veil of the supernatural realm and allows us to see what's going on behind the scenes, as it were. The reason it took the angel three weeks to get from heaven to Daniel is because he was restrained, he says, by demonic powers until Michael, one of the chief princes, Daniel 10, 13, came to his aid. In other words, Daniel 10 is a fascinating look at what Paul referred to in Ephesians 6 as the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, the message which, Daniel, or which the angel brings to Daniel, the message which, verse 21 of Daniel 10 says, is inscribed in the book of truth, which is a reminder that everything that happens has been foreordained by God and inscribed in his book, the message is a sweeping prophecy of world conflicts. It is a prophecy of what Jesus called wars and rumors of wars, in which God's covenant people will find themselves caught in the middle. Daniel 11, 1 to 12, 4 is the content of that prophecy, and it can be divided into four phases. Phase 1, 
verses 2 to 4 of chapter 11, covers the period between 538 B.C. and 323 B.C., or the period between the beginning of the reign of Cyrus the Great of Persia and Alexander the Great of Greece. Phase 2, verses 5 through 20, covers the period from 322 to 175 B.C., or from the death of Alexander and the division of his empire into the four realms of the Greek empire, to the death of Seleucus IV, who was the king of the kingdom of the north, the Asian kingdom. Phase 3, verses 21 to 35, covers the reign of a particularly important figure in biblical history, one Antiochus Epiphanes the Seleucid ruler of the kingdom of the north. Antiochus' reign was a brutal period in Israel's history as Antiochus was one of those prototypical antichrists of whom John spoke in 1 John 2.18. One of those antichrists who seemed bent upon the destruction of God's covenant people. He, He performed awful acts in Israel during a period of about three years. And those acts instigated what's known in history as the Maccabean Revolt. Phase 4 runs from verse 36 of chapter 11 to verse 4 of chapter 12. And this phase of Daniel's vision is the most difficult to pinpoint historically. Because there's nothing really in the text itself to indicate a break between verse 35 and verse 36. Yet, there seems to be a transition that takes place between Antiochus Epiphanes and some world ruler who is yet to come. In other words, these verses, verse 36 down to verse 4 of chapter 12, seem to be still referring to Antiochus Epiphanes at times, yet there are details which do not fit with Antiochus's life and seem to refer to an even greater, even more expansive world ruler yet to come which is why most interpreters therefore believe that this final section of the prophecy has Antiochus in the foreground, but telescopes beyond him over the centuries and over the millennia to the final Antichrist, the final man of sin of whom Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That final Antichrist of whom Antiochus is a prototype, a small-scale model, an antichrist with a lowercase a. This final antichrist will lead the world into a great conflict, and once again, the covenant people of God will be caught right in the middle. They will be the special object of this demonically empowered ruler's hatred. Which brings us to our text for this morning, Daniel 12, 1 through 4. At that time, what time? The time of the end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, as we've already established, that time of the end of which the angel spoke has now come. It came in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the book has been opened. If it hadn't been opened, we wouldn't have it. The book has been opened. These words, the words of this prophecy, are now available for our inspection and for the increase of our knowledge. So what are we supposed to learn from this book of prophecy? Well, now that we have the context in mind, I want us to focus in particular on verse 3 of Daniel chapter 12. On the day of resurrection, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Those who will rise to everlasting life, those who will shine like the brightness of the sky above, those who are wise are those who during these last days have turned many to righteousness. In other words, the wisdom of those whose names are written in the book, the wisdom of those who will be saved on the last day is manifested in the fact that they discerned the time. They recognized the time. And they put that time to good use in the task of the church, which is the evangelization of the nations. In other words, they took the time given them and they turned many to righteousness. I want verse 3 to describe this church. Look down at verse 3. I want that to be a description of First Baptist Nixa. When this church stands before Christ on the day of his return, I want him to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servants. You have lived wisely, for you have turned many to righteousness. But how? How do we live wisely in these last days? How do we turn many to righteousness? How do we do and become verse 3? Well, this morning I'm going to draw out three truths about what I'm calling eschatological evangelism, which simply means evangelism in these last days. Then in conclusion, I'm going to add a fourth truth. And my prayer is that God would take these truths, burn them upon our hearts and minds, and make us wise in the coming year. So truth number one, I want to show you the motivation for eschatological evangelism. In other words, the why. Why should we concern ourselves in the coming year, in these last days, with the task of turning many to righteousness. 
when all around us is tribulation, wars and rumors of wars, chaos and calamities and government shutdowns and and crises and relationships and all of the things that happen, why should we overcome those things in faith and, and set ourselves to the task of turning many to righteousness? Why not retreat behind the walls of the church and just wait for Jesus to come? Well, the answer according to Daniel 12.2 is because at the end there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, Jesus echoed this truth. He said in John chapter 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of Man, and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The book of Revelation echoes the same. John says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. In other words, verse 2 tells us that when the days are completed... And the final conflict plays out according to God's plan and the Lord returns in power and great glory. He will utter the sovereign command and all the dead shall rise and all the living shall be gathered before him for judgment. And this judgment will have eternal consequences. Everlasting life and joy and peace to those who have done good and everlasting shame and contempt for those who have done evil. And nobody's exempt from this final resurrection, and no one will escape this final judgment. Which means that your spouse, your child, your sibling, your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, that person that I've prayed that the Spirit would bring to your mind this morning, that person will live eternally in one condition or the other. Either in everlasting joy or in everlasting torment. So just sit for a moment and let the weight of Daniel 12.2 rest upon your soul. Think of that person. Who's going to turn them to righteousness if not you? Could it be that God has providentially placed you in proximity to that person, placed you in relationship with them in order that you would be the one to turn them to righteousness? The motivation For eschatological evangelism is the news that every person, everywhere, in every time will be raised, will be judged, and will spend eternity in either everlasting joy or everlasting contempt. Second, 
I want us to note the message of eschatological evangelism. What is it that we're to come proclaim? The angel says to Daniel that the wise are those who turn many to righteousness. Now, I think it's providential that we're in Daniel 12 this morning because we've spent the last several months being equipped to understand what that little phrase means. Turning many to righteousness does not mean turning many to the law in order that they may make themselves righteous. It does not mean turning many to an external morality in order to make them outwardly better people. It does not mean turning many to religious works. It doesn't mean merely getting them to come to church. It means turning them to the obedience of faith. Just like Paul said was his God-ordained task in these last days. It means turning them to a righteousness which is not of themselves. A righteousness that is apart from the works of the law. A righteousness that is imputed to them and received by faith alone. A righteousness that alone can justify them in the sight of a holy God. It means turning them to a life of faith which trusts in the grace and the power of the Spirit, in order to produce within them true righteousness, which consists in real love for God and real love for people. It means, in other words, turning them to the gospel of Christ. So, let me remind you of the five major components of this gospel. This gospel of righteousness, which we, you, must share in these last days if you're going to live wisely by turning many to righteousness. So if you came in this morning and you need to be turned to righteousness, listen closely because this is it. This is the gospel that you, church, must share, that you, unbeliever, must believe. Number one, creation. We were created in the image of God, created as God's special creation, designed for beauty and for glory and for fellowship with God and with one another. We were created in righteousness, created to live in a relationship to God of love and worship and trust and obedience and joy. We were created to live joyfully under God's loving reign and at the same time to lovingly and joyfully reign over all that God had made. Number two, fall. But man fell from this original righteousness in which he was created. Desiring to rule over himself rather than to live beneath God's rule and God's reign, man sinned against God. And the effects of this sin have now spread throughout the entirety of the human race with the result that all men everywhere, without exception, are unrighteous by nature, no longer capable of loving God and loving people. We are all of us born with hearts bent towards sin and self-rule, desiring to reign over our own lives and the lives of others as if we were God. 
the essence of sin, as we saw from Romans chapter 1. It is the desire to be as God. To make our own rules, to set our own path, to set our own course of life, and to follow our own way. But number three, this can only end in judgment. Because we are not God. And our exercise of autonomy has only led to evil and destruction, and it has placed us underneath God's wrath and curse. In His righteousness, God has sworn to judge men for their sin and to render all men their just recompense. The due penalty for our sin is death, eternal and everlasting, of which our physical death is but a foretaste. There will come a day when God will raise the dead and will bring all men everywhere into judgment with the result that the unrighteous will receive everlasting conscious torment. Eternal death, which is defined not as non-existence, but as an eternal existence separated from the life and love and fellowship of our Creator. But, number four, Christ. The love of God sent the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God in order that the enemies of God might become the sons of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man, lived a perfectly righteous life. In other words, he lived joyfully under the reign of God as we were created to live. And he went to the cross in order to die in the place of sinners, bearing their sins, our sins, in his body and absorbing the wrath and curse of God that was due to us in our stead. On the third day, God vindicated Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead, thus demonstrating that the atonement for sin had been made and accepted and that the way of salvation is open to all who will turn from sin and turn to righteousness. Which brings us to number five. How do we do that? How do you turn to righteousness? What do you say to someone in order to plead with them to turn to righteousness? Well, turning to righteousness means, number one, confessing that you are unrighteous by nature and by choice. That your life has been lived in rebellion against God's rule and reign. Confessing to God that not only have you done evil deeds, you are evil. Number two, it means embracing Christ's death on the cross as the sole means by which your sins can be forgiven and receiving Christ's righteousness imputed to you by faith as the only means by which you can be accepted once again in the sight of God. And number three, it means receiving a new heart and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit whom you daily trust to change your affections and increasingly enable you to live joyfully under the reign of God as you were created to live. A life demonstrated by obedience to His revealed Word. 
This is what it means to turn many to righteousness in these last days. This, creation, fall, judgment, Christ response, is the message of eschatological evangelism. And it's this message that must be proclaimed far and wide by this church, both to the nations and to our neighbors. Third, what is the result of such eschatological evangelism? Well, the angel expresses it in terms of a metaphor that he sets in, in parallel. Two phrases set in parallel to one another. Verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. To borrow a phrase from Brian Chapel, I'm not entirely sure what this means, but I'm entirely sure that it's good. So let's, uh, let's break it apart and try to glean what the angel is saying. First, I want you to note that these two phrases are, are said in parallel, which means that they each mean the same thing and each one explains the other. Therefore, to be wise, phrase one, is to turn many to righteousness, phrase two. Just as to shine like the brightness of the sky above means the same thing as to shine like the stars forever and ever. In other words, an indelible characteristic of the wisdom that saves is that it teaches others this wisdom. There is no such thing in these last days as a wise hermit who sits silently by and watches his friends and neighbors destroy themselves in unrighteousness. Wisdom speaks. Wisdom heralds. Proverbs 8, does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice. On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Wisdom speaks, it cannot remain silent. And if you are wise in these last days, neither can you. Second, since the wise reflect the wisdom of God in, in crying out and, and heralding warnings to those who are headed for destruction, so will the wise reflect God's glory throughout endless ages. You are never more like God than when you are speaking truth in love. In eternity, the wise will shine like the with the radiance and the majesty of God's glory. That's what the angel means when he says you're going to shine. If you're wise, you're going to shine like the stars forever and ever. The reward of godliness, defined as speaking the truth in love and turning many to righteousness, is sharing in God's everlasting glory. Now once again, I don't know how to describe this. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I think C.S. Lewis did. In his short allegory of eternity entitled The Great Divorce, 
there is a scene in which a triumphal procession is, is making its way to the mountains, to the eternal city where dwells the living God. At the center of this triumphal procession, attended by shining angels and and radiant men and women who are all shouting for joy, is a woman who is radiant with splendor. And Lewis goes on for pages describing what he calls the unbearable beauty of her face. He describes how she, she moved elegantly upon the grass, how she exuded from her very being love and joy, and mercy, and grace. The men and the women who attend her, who sing and dance in her honor as she gloriously processes to the eternal city, to the mountains, they are identified as her sons and her daughters, those she turned to righteousness. And it's an enthralling scene which grows only more fascinating as she comes upon a man who in life had been her husband whom Lewis describes as, quote, a ghost no bigger than an organ grinder's monkey. Her husband is an ugly, pitiful, insubstantial creature, even more so when he is juxtaposed against the woman who, Lewis says, has joy enough in her little finger to waken all the dead things in the universe to life. (laughs) Who is this woman? Was she some great missionary? Was she someone who was famous in her life like Susanna Wesley for her godliness and her piety? No, says Lewis, she was just Sarah Smith from Golders Green. But, says the guide, she is one of the great ones. For fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. What Lewis is describing is a woman who lived wisely in these last days and who turned many to righteousness and therefore will shine like the stars forever and ever. Our efforts at eschatological evangelism will redound to eternal glory because there is nothing more holy, nothing more godly to which we could give ourselves in these last days than to cry out to those headed for destruction and to turn them to the way of righteousness and life. Now, those three truths, I hope you see, can all be drawn from Daniel 12. The fourth truth I'm adding to it as a personal challenge to you in the coming year in in hopes of taking eschatological evangelism out of the realm of the abstract and into the realm of the concrete and the accountable. Something that can be done, something that can be measured, something that a year from now we can ask, did you do it? It would be easy to end this sermon here, give some vague challenge to share the gospel more in the coming year, sing a song, and then go out. But I ask you what that would accomplish. More than likely, it would result in another year of knowing that you should evangelize, but not actually evangelizing, and then spending the year feeling vaguely guilty, vaguely less than Christian because we don't open our mouths and we don't speak the truth to those who most need it. 
So allow me, if you will, as we conclude, to get specific. I am challenging this morning every one of us, members, deacons, elders, all of us, to prayerfully select one person whom you know to be lost, whom you know to be unrighteous, whom you know to be headed for that resurrection of shame and everlasting contempt, and to target them in the next year with all of your evangelistic energy. Specifically, I'm challenging you to four things. Number one, I'm challenging you to pray. I'm challenging you to pray persistently for their conversion. I'm challenging you to pray for opportunities to speak truth to them. I'm challenging you to pray for a receptive and responsive heart to that truth. Because I guarantee you, if you will form the habit of praying for this person every day, not only will God grant you opportunities to speak, you will recognize them when they, when they arise because you'll be ready for them. Why? Your mind is attuned to those opportunities. I'm not asking you to pray for the world in the coming year. If you want to, that's great. I'm asking you to be specific and to pray for a lost person and to pray for that person every day. Number two, I'm challenging you to pursue that person. I'm challenging you to intentionally pursue a friendship with this person. I'm challenging you to go deep, deeper than you're comfortable. I'm challenging you to get underneath superficial talk about kids and the weather. I'm challenging you to ask them probing questions. I'm challenging you to be the kind of friend that they'll come to in their times of need. I'm challenging you to have them over for dinner and to take them out for lunch. I'm challenging you to be intentionally relational. Number three, I'm challenging you to proclaim. Proclaim the message of eschatological evangelism. Proclaim the word of God. Proclaim wisdom. You don't have to share all five components of the gospel all at once. The goal is to share the whole gospel by the end of the year. And number four, I'm challenging you to persevere. I'm challenging you to keep praying, keep pursuing, and keep proclaiming. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let this float into the background of your life and be pushed there by the tyranny of the urgent. That's why I began with the motivation of coming judgment, because there is literally nothing more urgent that you will face in the coming year than turning this person to righteousness, not if Jesus is coming back. So the way we're going to conclude this morning is by taking up the challenge to live wisely in these last days. In your bulletin, there is an envelope. Inside that envelope, there is a slip of paper in it. I'm going to ask you to get it out now. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer and commitment. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask God to give you a name. And I want you to do the same. I want you to ask God who he would have you target in 2019. Now, don't 
stress yourself out about this because the fact of the matter is you can't choose wrong. You can't choose wrongly. I believe you will know who it is, and then it doesn't really matter who it is because every unbeliever needs to be prayed for, pursued, proclaimed to, and persevered with. I want you to write the name of that person down on the slip, slide it back into the envelope, write your name on the front of the envelope, and then there's going to be baskets at both exits. I want you to drop that envelope sealed into that basket where I will collect them and I will keep them for a year. Periodically throughout the coming year, we're going to have questions appearing on the Connect card that's going to be reminders to pray, pursue, proclaim, and persevere. And next December, I'm going to return those envelopes to you, and I'm going to ask you to share testimonies about what God has done. And my prayer is that 12 months from now, we will have seen Him work in incredible ways. So we pray that God would show His glory and that this church would shine with that glory like the stars forever and ever. Now before I close, I wonder if perhaps there are some of you who are here this morning and you know that you yourself are one of those who need to be turned to righteousness. Well, you've heard the message. Now is the time to respond. How do you respond? How do you turn to righteousness? There are three steps. Number one, you must confess that you are unrighteous by nature and by choice. You must confess that your life has been lived in rebellion against the sovereign God. Number two, you must embrace by faith Christ. His death on the cross as the only atonement for your sins and His righteousness given to you, clothing you like a, like a robe as the only means by which you can be accepted in the judgment in the sight of a just and holy God. And number three, you must ask God to give you a new heart to fill you with His Holy Spirit, to change you from the inside out and to help you trust Him, to daily change your affections and increasingly enable you to live joyfully under the reign of God as demonstrated by obedience to His revealed and written Word. Turn to righteousness in order that when Christ returns and the dead are raised and you stand before the judge, you may be welcomed into the resurrection of the just and receive everlasting joy and peace and shine like the stars forever and ever. Amen.